What's up, y'all? Welcome to Cult America, where we discuss the weird, wonderful, and worrying rituals and sacrifices that make America great. I'm Carl Joseph Black, a Brooklyn native born into the cult that is America. And I'm Lisa Charlotte, a foreigner migrant who bought into the cult from afar. Episode one, let's go. What's up, Lisa? I, I have a question for you. Okay. Is this America or is this a cult? So this leader is described by themselves and others. Well, let's be real, himself and others as the smartest and most ethical person in the world. Cult or America? Oh, yeah, that's, that's American. No, actually. What? Yes, it's actually cult. Whoa, 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 whoa. What cult is this? Yeah, what cult is this? So this is how the cult Nexium, spelled N-X-I-V-M, of course, the natural spelling of that that word. This is how they describe their leader, Keith Raniere, who is also known as the vanguard within the cult. Wow. Wait, can you tell me about them a little bit? I I feel like I've heard about these folks before. Well, you've heard of Alison Mack. Yeah, yeah. She's from Smallville. Yeah, yeah. So she's the person who this cult is about. So basically, Nexium started as this like self-help group to be the most optimal version of yourself. You know, it sounds inspiring. Yeah. Started in 1998 by Keith Raniere and Nancy Saltzman, who is known as the Prefect, which sounds very creepy. Yeah. And they developed these like executive success programs for people. So a lot of like actors and musicians and stuff were really into them. In 2017, some members were like, dude, I think this is a cult. And so (laughs) they'd started all these subsects and Alison Mack was uh, recruiting all these women into this thing called DOS, which was basically like a slave master relationship. So like they'd be like, always have to be like ready for the text. So she's like, oh, it's wild. The hell? I know. I know. And this was happening in like Albany, New York. Oh, shit. (laughs) This is happening upstate New York. The fuck? (laughs) Yo. Oh, man. And so Keith Raniere has been sentenced to 120 years in prison over this cult. So they were branding women with their initials. Like it was like this weird little thing. And they're like, oh, it's a symbol. It means this. But it had like Alison Mack's initials and Keith Raniere's initials on it. wow. So they were branding these women. They were taking collateral. So they were making them say like confessions to a camera. Like real, like, I don't know. It feels really like a it's like real Illuminati world. style. It's like real world where they're sitting in the room. Yeah, no, like have to say incriminating like, shit. Lots of similarities though. Like definitely if you look at the figure of Keith Raniere yeah. and you look at Donald Trump, they both have this similar kind of vibe. They both insist that they're geniuses. Mm-hmm. I'm doing air quotes. No one can see that Yeah, on, on your radio, but. Anyway, um, but both of them had like pretty poor academic records, to be Mm -hmm. honest. They both created fraudulent schools. So Trump University and executive success programs, both. I mean, I think the executive success programs, people got a lot more out of that. I feel they did like I listened to some accounts of people who like did these courses and they felt like they learned so much about themselves. And anyway. They both misrepresented themselves as huge successes in business, even though they both went bankrupt. (laughs) Wow. They're both creepy. And they both use celebrity to uh, kind of like sell themselves and their business. So that's Nexium. That's so weird. Like, it's interesting because many people, obviously not everyone, but many people before he ran for president 
and became like the true definition of an asshole. Many people believed that Donald Trump was like American success. Yeah. Like this guy was like in, in many rappers videos as like the person to be, this guy was in fucking home alone. He's like, they took him out in Canada. Yeah. They like, took him out of it. They're like, we don't want that. It's like ridiculous. But before all of that mess, like this guy, Donald Trump was like the quintessential blonde hair, blue eyed American success story. I mean, it's weird for me to understand because I didn't live here like pre this happening. Yeah. So I didn't really like I kind of understood who he was sort of. But like we didn't really have that like following of Donald Trump in Australia. Like, I think it's like an American that you knew existed. You didn't really know what he did. Yeah. This guy was like the guy you wanted to be. Yeah. For a long time. Because, you know, his name was everywhere. He put his name on all the buildings. So if you're like in Midtown Manhattan or you're on Fifth Avenue or whatever, you're passing uh, a Trump Tower or whatever. And like there, there's actually in Jay-Z's last album, the Black Album, the one he announced his retirement on, there's a song called What More Can I Say? And in that song, there's a verse where he goes, I'm at the Trump International. Ask for me. I ain't never scared. I'm everywhere. You ain't never there. When why should I ever care? Pound for pound, I'm the best to ever come around here. Like the mere fact that Jay-Z, like That's a flex. That, like that's a flex. Being at the Trump International was a flex. Like being associated with him was an American flex, which is why, like, if you look at old pictures, you'll see like rappers posing with Donald Trump. He was a symbol of success, symbol of um, quintessential Americanism. And like the the true meaning of the American dream, right? So it's like weird that he's just like he's very similar to this Keith Ranieri guy. Yeah, very, very similar. And the behaviors of the Nexium cult were really similar to the sort of idea of like, you know, you have it within yourself to achieve the potential of the American dream. Like if you work hard enough and if you buy this course and if you do these the work you're going to get it so the cult behavior for our cult rubric this week that this episode is related to is that the leadership induces feelings of shame and or guilt in order to influence and control its members often done through peer pressure and subtle forms of persuasion which i think is like really you know this idea of self-help and self-actualization you mean like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps exactly like that you mean like like if you work hard you'll get it yeah, exactly. Ah, got it. You sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> got it. Very American. Very American. So before I get into the history of the American dream, I want to ask you, what is the American dream to you growing up in America? Wow. Okay. So I don't know, like the movies kind of told me the American dream was kind of getting that like big house, white picket fence, golden retriever dog, really expensive domestic vehicle or foreign vehicle. Mm-hmm. You know, a really nice, shiny Mercedes Benz, you know, also just like having a job that's, you know, one of the like top crafts. So usually like doctor, lawyer, banker, you know, CEO, engineer, kind of. Kind of. Yeah. Engineer, I mean, kinda. I'm looking at your bridges. It looks like you could use some more We could use some engineers. more engineers. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely have some crumbling infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, that was like the quintessential American dream. And, and for me, it's changed. 
personally over the years it changed from like the white picket fence to maybe like a new york city brownstone right like whether it's in brooklyn or upper east side manhattan or something or like and maybe not the super high flying ceo guy you know because it just looks like that person that man or woman is just like stressed out all the time right so then there's that and just also just the freedom to kind of just do what you want when you want and i think that's like that's starting to become like the ethos as of late but but yeah that's that's the american dream to me i mean yeah the american dream has gone through a lot of iterations the american dream is a phrase that was popularly coined in 1931 by writer James Truslow Adams, and he wrote a book called The Epic of America, which he actually wanted to call The American Dream, but they were like, nah, you can't call it that. So he just used it like 30 times in the text. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's how you do it. Yeah. And so he his quote talking about The American Dream is, it is the dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everybody with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement. Which is pretty broad. Meritocracy. I mean, it kind of indicates that there is a meritocracy. It was written in the Depression, and it was kind of seen as an upward trajectory towards greatness, not greatness itself. So it's like the striving. Yeah, I feel like folks really needed that shit during the Great Depression. Folks need that shit now. Word. (laughs) Word. He didn't kind of describe it as something that was inherently American. It was just something that was most successful in America. So it's Ah. sort of like human condition, but like this is at a time when there was a lot of social stratification everywhere else. Mm -hmm. And so America was sort of, as you said, like the idea of America, it was that it was more of a meritocracy than other places where you were sort of like at your level. The whole like stick with America, at least when you learn about it, in like grade school and the difference between like America and Europe is that there's just a permanent nobility. Like there's a permanent noble class, right? Like you cannot become the Archduke of Edinburgh by working hard. Like you have to have been born into that family and be in the right line for you to become that. Right. And wealth has always been associated with these like positions in Europe, but in the United States, it's kind of like, Hey, if you get up, you have a great idea, you uh, work hard, you won't become the prince of anything, but you'll be probably richer than the prince of everything. Yeah. Right. Like, which is still like um, in theory true, but I would argue that we're getting further and further away from that being a possibility. Yes. Yes. And because it's it's because of all the like issues with wealth inequality in the U.S. For sure. I would also say that there's opportunity inequality as well, just because of the way money flows in America. Like they're not like venture capitalists are not like going to Canarsie, Brooklyn, saying y'all got some good ideas. No, they're not (laughs) doing that, but they're definitely going to Columbia Right. They're going to NYU. They're going to Stanford, Harvard, MIT, Yale. And then they're going to any organization that is closely tied to those institutions. Well, you know, rich white dudes been doing such a great job. Yeah. Just keep throwing them money, I reckon. Yeah. And and rich white dudes got great branding. (laughs) You know, their branding is like elite. Like there's no branding like rich white dude branding. (laughs) 
But that's what happens when you achieve the American dream, right? Yeah. Like people start to look at you as the new example of the American dream. Yeah. Like when did, so like this is when the American dream started or like was no. the American dream a thing before that? No, no, no. It dates back to like 17th century with oh. the Puritans who are seeking religious freedom. So they're like, you know, they're coming over. That's like the first American dream, you know. And then in the 18th century, Americans, when they're seeking independence from the British and crafting the Declaration of Independence, they sort of like have this idea in their head of this like American dream and meritocracy going into kind of like 19th century and manifest destiny and the Wild West and like yeah. looking for gold. So like that's like a, you know, before it was sort of popularly coined by this dude. Yeah. It was sort of an idea that was alive in early days of America. This like rugged individualism. Yeah. 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 And so, of course, after this term is coined by this dude, take a guess of like where where America's going to go with that first. Like where where did it start popping up first? I mean, you- they're going to start selling that shit. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it really became popular when they started using the idea of the American dream in ads to sell products, especially, you know, I don't know, like electronical appliances for the kitchen or whatever. It was like yeah. all sold behind this idea of the American dream. And so it wasn't really what you're talking about, white picket fence, uh, homeownership, anything like that, until after the war. Oh. And so in the 50s, after the war, obviously there's less income inequality. People are sort of in a position where they can start to achieve this. And this is when this sort of white picket fence idea comes into being yeah because all of the soldiers came home and they had like the gi bill and shit they want comfort man yeah <laughs> and, like, just and go you know they're back suburbs. they're like yeah, i just seen some shit in europe i'm not going back and you know the gi bill gave them access to education and education gave them access to jobs so they were like well we need to figure out what they're gonna do with their money so let's just sell them a vision of mm-hmm. what they should do with their money which is buy a white picket fence, buy some really cool appliances, and uh, buy a nice car. Buy yeah. buy a Chevy. What was the car back then? It was like the Pontiac, Bonneville. I have no idea. Yeah, the, those super long cars that were like candy colored and shit. The cars you see in Greece. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's in the 50s, right? That's like, well, Greece is in the 70s, but everybody's driving like a car they got gifted from their parents. I in the see. 70s. So it's usually like a car from like the 50s or the 60s. Ellie Brigida, the audio engineer for this episode here. I just need to make a quick correction on this because I am a huge Grease fan. Grease was indeed released in 1978, but the movie does take place in the 1950s. They weren't their parents' cars. They were just their straight-up cars from the 50s. Very important distinction. Back to the episode. This is the American dream. So this is like, I think when you ask a lot of people about the American dream, this is sort of like what they think of. Yeah. But in the 60s, Martin Luther King Jr., kind of brought this idea of the American dream into the I have a dream speech. And this sort of also extended into women's rights, second wave feminism. And so it kind of started to take a bit of a, a shift. It, it becomes more about meritocracy for real. Yeah. And I mean, that like, kind of feels true to like the original yeah. term, uh, yeah. the original kind of phrasing of it. But even though they like to sell that they had this like equal society where mm-hmm. anybody could achieve anything, it absolutely wasn't. Yeah. Like it wasn't for most of the people in the country. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's interesting you mentioned Martin Luther King because in the I Have a Dream speech, he says, I have a dream that one day my children will not be 
judged based on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. Right. You said um, that off the top of your head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll be spitting. I'll be spitting. <laughs> you know, that that's meritocracy right there. I want to judge you based on who you are as a person and what you've done and not on the color of your skin or your gender or your sex or what you decide that you want to be identified as. Right. So to think about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So 70s, 80s, this is where I'm just like really excited to hear your thoughts. Ads for homeownership and homeownership is just like sold as like patriotism. Like you want to be a patriot? Buy a house. Buy a house. And so we have Reagan's voodoo economics. And I know you got thoughts about Reagan. Yeah. Reagan. Reagan's an asshole. (laughs) That's it. That's that's (laughs) the thoughts. We're done. Yeah. Yeah. Reagan's an asshole. During his time, he has trickle down economics or whatever. And perfect um, system. And essentially he's like, yeah, the rich people are going to invest in the poor people and it's going to make the economy better. It's working out great. And the rich people are like, psych. (laughs) (laughs) And then we're not even like, I guess we could go into the fact that, you know, Reagan CIA, like straight up flooded the hood with crack and cocaine, which stunted the American dream for a group of people. Right. So then there's that shit like yeah reagan's an asshole he's an asshole i'm sure it'll come up again yeah and i'm sure somebody's gonna listen to this and say reagan's not an asshole he's a patriot that's right guys this is our opinion so, yeah like, yeah you don't like, you don't like it you don't have to like everything we say right because like to many people like many people actually believe like reagan is a, a hero and the reason why is because he believed in deregulating markets and he believed that there was too much government intervention into american lives which in some ways there were at the time, but I don't agree with his, his approach. He decided to take his hand off the wheel of many things that protected Americans. And as a result, Americans are still suffering today because of that. So, I mean, the thing that's like for me, so obviously Australia is a country that has a bit more of a government oversight into things like healthcare and, and everything. It is a bit more of a nanny state than here. And like there are pluses and minuses, obviously, to everything. But the thing that I sort of find really interesting, specifically when speaking about the American dream, is that the time when like the American dream, as it was like, as most people envision it, was most happening was when there was more government assistance and less inequality. So when people could buy houses, people were more able to buy houses when they had that baseline of care. And like, look, I've been pretty poor in my life. I've been poor in Australia. I've been poor in America. And like having that baseline of like healthcare security and all of that makes all the difference in terms of being able to like take a step up. Like when you have to worry about like being bankrupt if you fall over. Yeah. It's a lot harder to like actually move yourself up because you're so worried all the time. You're fixated on like being poor and not being able to afford things. And what if I get an unexpected bill or cost or whatever? I pay more in healthcare per month as like insurance here than I usually would spend in a year in Australia on healthcare at all. Yeah. It's so hard to move up mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. that. So I don't know. Yeah. And it's one of those things that it's like your ability to participate in the meritocracy of America is hindered because of your place in America. Yeah. It's like so weird. If you can't like, if you have to think about every cent you spend at the supermarket, you can't think about like striving towards a better version of yourself. Yeah. Like how the hell are you going to write the 
next version of the Epic of America if your stomach is like, yo, we need some food. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, it's like really weird. And obviously the author of Epic of America, you know, had some ability, right? Like, I don't know what his life was like, but I'm sure he probably wasn't in a situation where it was so dire that he couldn't write. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that book probably allowed him to move up the social ladder, income ladder uh, of the U.S., of America, because of that book. Like, that book gave him the opportunity to participate in a meritocracy. But, like, many people don't have that because yeah. there's the conditions we're living in. And there'll be, you know, the whole starving artist thing is so, like, glorified. and Yeah. It's it's just, and, you know, you hear these stories. I, I mean, Squid Game's been this whole thing. I haven't watched it yet. But um, there was a great, story going around. Great social commentary. Yeah, I mean, I got to get there, but I just, you know, I've been busy. But it's, I, I mean, I was reading a story about the guy and like he's Korean anyway. I don't know how much it fits into the American dream, but the narrative was like, he wrote this 10 years ago and he like went around and like people said no and like all this stuff and they're selling this is like a great triumph. And it's like, well, this is like now the most watched show did they talk Netflix. about the fact that he was like about to sell his computer for six hundred dollars yeah. yeah but they sell this now now that he's succeeded that's an amazing story but, it's but if not. he was homeless then he's a failure yeah but it's not a, a success story not in terms of like his work his work is a success but like the fact that the computer that he probably wrote squid games on he had to sell yeah it, it's not a success story it, and yeah it it's, just shows society. That one point of difference and like being that close, like that one moment can change everything. And it, it's the difference of how people perceive you. If you're successful, that's like the story they're going to sell to everybody. Like this guy was going to sell his computer and now look at him. But you're not like this homeless guy almost made, wrote the squid games, but then he fell down the stairs. Yeah. And now he's homeless. J.K. Rowling has like a similar story where they're like, yeah, she wrote Harry Potter on napkins. And it's like, why are we writing stories on napkins? Exactly. Like, why? Why, why is, are we glorifying that? Yeah, why is that? Why Why does that point part of our society? And I think part of it is because it's supposed to, it is along that narrative of lift yourself up by your bootstraps. But the right? people who are making these policies and the people who are telling these stories very rarely have had to do that. Right. In the, in that level, at that level. Yeah, like many of the politicians that are politicians come from not very very well i guess some of them come from very wealthy families but at least they're like middle class yeah you know? yeah they like, haven't they have, haven't ever had to like sit at a supermarket and be like okay i have like ten dollars and i've got to feed myself for like three days yeah what can we do yeah okay but to bring it back to cults oh the cult that we were talking about this episode yeah i mean they use really similar tactics they were like overworking these people and this nexium cult they were actually using caloric like restrictions. So they, they had this like slave master relationship and they would like monitor. Cause it was a lot of these like people are like really like attractive young actresses and yeah. they're trying to succeed and they're like, I want to lose weight. And so they had like, they were actually starving them as well as part of like Whoa. this. And it's a way that cults actually often not just Nexium, but a lot of cults will use this sort of like, and we'll, we'll get into it in future episodes use this tactic of like starving people, overworking people so that they just can't think. Wow. And revolt. It's interesting because like <laughs> uh, so many different parts of our society, especially when it comes to entering institutions, 
or being a or trying to join a craft or a guild tend to have a similar process. Like for example, like in law school, like they wear you the fuck out. They wear you out in law school. They wear you out your first they they scare you your first year and like they kick some people out and shit. So you like watch people get kicked out. You're like, I gotta work harder. Right. And then your second year, they like work you to death. And then your third year, they bore you to death. Um, I guess it's because you made it. But then after you graduate, you think it's over. And then you have to take the bar exam. And the bar exam, like, there's so much law that you have to memorize that, like, you you barely get sleep. You don't talk to family. You wake up. You study for the bar exam. I remember when you were studying for the bar exam. Yeah. I, I didn't speak to you for ages. Yeah, it's like 14, 15-hour days. You're, like, barely eating because you're so focused on your work. And then you take the bar. And then you hope you pass, right? So it's it's very similar to what you just described about the cult. Yeah, and so people will be like, well, how could you be involved in this cult? But like, I don't know, Carl, how did you be involved in the law school cult? Like, these people thought that they were like on their journey to self-actualization and they're throwing all this money at it and they're working so hard and they're like trying to lose weight and they're doing all this stuff. And it's like, it's not that different from yeah. law school. Yeah. Or it, like... Yeah, it's it's... Trying to be an actress or, right. you know, it's, it's not that different. So you can kind of see how, how it could make sense to people. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, especially if you are around environments that tell you that this is the way, mm. right. And we're consistently told that. Yeah. Like if you're not working that hard that you're like, it's glorified. Like why are you leaving the office at 7 PM? Yeah. You should be here till 11. Till 11. What, what family? Yeah. Uh, which I just, you know, I really don't, I really don't buy into this. Of thing. course. But anyway, we're moving into the '90s, early aughts. We get the '90s McMansion craze. Oh yeah, like a whole thing, which is followed shortly by the 2003 Bush American Dream Down Payment Act, subsidized home purchases, and kind of like created this housing bubble. Yeah. Everybody was chasing it at that Everybody. time. Everybody. Which, like, back in your wheelhouse, led to the financial crisis in 2008. Yeah, because everybody, because what they did was the American dream got advertised and banks were like, well, how do we sell it, right? So so then the infrastructure to, or the process to um, buying a house got, like, sold to people. It was like, hey, like, I, I don't care if you don't have any income. I don't care if you have a job. Just put whatever on this paper and I'll give you a loan and you get a house. Right. And they were like, yeah, they'll just pay it back. They're willing to pay whatever they got to pay to be in the American dream. But a lot of people are actually worse off than they were before they got their house. And yeah. And it kind of fucked the whole world, really. And yeah. like the two movies we talk about in our bonus episodes, first two bonus episodes, both kind of focus on. Well, actually, no. Wolf of Wall Street doesn't talk about the economic. No, Wolf of Wall Street doesn't talk about. The housing bubble, it talks about how different brokerage firms essentially steal from clients. Yeah. Um, but the second the, movie we cover, Hustlers. Hustlers talks about how the housing bubble affects how Everyday the housing working bubble. Everyday working people. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even people that aren't in the financial industry. Yeah. But that are adjacent to the financial industry. Adjacent. So early aughts, 2010s. We start to have this new idea of an American dream, which is coming to us through our televisions, Friends, Sex and the City, et cetera. 
of the middle-aged young singles living in New York City most of the time. And that's like a different, I guess, a, a different pitch of what it could look like, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, also, I mean, despite the fact that the rent that people were paying, completely unrealistic, and these shows are ridiculously white, even though they're set in like one of the most diverse cities in the world, was probably more achievable for a lot of people than the white picket fence. Yeah, for for young urban professionals, which really just means um, folks who went to really privileged or elite schools and got jobs in New York City so they could afford to have an apartment with maybe like two other friends that they went to college with. But like if you were born and raised in New York City, like you weren't afford, you, you couldn't afford to live in the neighborhood where Friends was. Where was Friends set? I never watched it. Yeah, it's supposed to be like a East Village kind of vibe. And I'm like, yo, like the only people who like born and raised in New York that live in East Village are the people who live in the rent controlled apartments mm-hmm. over in East Village. Yeah. Everyone else that just moves to Everyone East I know who lives in East Village is like super like, rich. Yeah, they either like are super They're rich. They're in tech or, or something. Or like, or like they live in a fucking box. Like a like a cardboard box inside of a building structure. It's that <laughs> small. It's like ridiculous. Yeah. It's not worth it. Yeah. So like so to see that they have these sprawling apartments across from each other. Uh, you know wild. what I mean? And like what does Rachel do? Rachel works at the Central Perk, the coffee shop. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like imagine working at Starbucks living in East Village. <laughs> <laughs> like, like word. <laughs> Not even like, because you can kind of understand it. Like, honestly, like working here. I when I first worked here, I worked at a cafe, like a really bougie Australian cafe, and I I cleaned up. Like, it was pretty good money. Was because, it East Village money? Nah, probably not. I mean, if I'd been working like every single day, I think I was only working like three, four days a week, but it was like a Tribeca brunch spot. Like the Got tips you. were pretty good. We split yeah. them evenly. Like, I think I was making like, I don't know, 45, 50 an hour. Yeah. As a like barista. So or like a bartender barista, which is pretty good money for like a day job. Yeah. And if you're working in the evenings in like some financial district shit, like you can make a fucking lot of money. East Village money? You know what? Rachel probably had a sugar daddy. That's what it is. Oh. You know, I have deep regret that I never took any sugar daddy offers when I moved here because damn, that's like a whole thing in this city. Wait, 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 wait. What <laughs> if we brought friends back and had Rachel have a sugar daddy. It's 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 the only thing that makes sense. And Ross just had to get his money up. But you don't have to fuck <laughs> a sugar daddy, you know? You don't have to. Yo, that would be crazy. But like you this is something like you probably haven't experienced, but like there is a real culture of this in New York. And like I have had like I used to work in the financial district. I've had offers for sugar daddies and I was like too proud to like take money from a man to like have dinner with him. And after three years of living in New York, I'm like Fuck yeah, pay me. Go have dinner. <laughs> I'm sick of being poor. Let's go. Yeah, imagine I'll the take new your American money. dream. What's your American dream? I need a sugar daddy. I need That's a sugar my daddy, dream. Man. I'm just, why was I so proud? It's cool. I want to go back. I want to go back in time and tell past me, take their fucking money. Somebody, somebody's Hard listening to this in. and they're like, good girl. That's what you do. Have your independence, girl. Yeah. Somebody's saying that. So, yeah. you know, you're making somebody proud out here. Oh, uh, well, you know, maybe if my dad's listening, he'd be happy that I never <laughs> took the offer. <laughs> All right, so we're back to the now. And the housing market's booming again, which is just, you know. Very weird. It's very weird. 
yeah, I don't know. Do you have you've thoughts about that? Yeah, it's it's interesting because the whole living in the city kind of American dream thing is actually starting to shift back to the what I would say is like the McMansion type of American dream where people are just like, I'm trying to get out the city. I'm trying to buy a house with more space. We don't know when we're going to be locked in them. Again. Like, we don't know when we're going to be locked in again. And I don't want to be locked into an apartment. You know what I mean? So like what you're actually seeing a lot on social media networks are people who are like buying their first house and like posting it on Instagram. Oh, and yeah. other people Heaps are watching that. that shit. And they're like, fuck, I need to get my own house too. Like I need to get out of New York. Right. So you're seeing this like small exodus of people exiting New York to go to like upstate or go to Connecticut or go to New Jersey to buy like a house that has more space that, to be honest, probably from a price perspective, makes sense because your mortgage is probably going to be like twelve hundred dollars, thirteen hundred dollars a month. Your rent in New York is going to be like two grand. 2400 a month so like maybe it does make sense to move to another place the only issue is that opportunity won't be the same mm. but it depends because with the remote work revolution too you might actually have access to pretty good work living away from a large city yeah i mean that's definitely shifted things yeah i think also a lot of people like started to question like all this fucking money that was being spent on rent and stuff in the pandemic and they're like i could pay a mortgage for this amount so people who have capital are like well fuck it i'm buy a house yeah and pay sure. the same amount for sure it's interesting because like that idea because like a lot of people see that as the american dream too like buying a house then like getting rental income from the house and but like cruising. that yeah and that, but that's like that's like specific markets in new york where you have a lot of renters buying a house in new york and renting it is is very, very possible. But if you're in, like, the Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, right? Like, you buy a house, you ain't renting shit to nobody. <laughs> like, every, just sitting there. everybody's buying a house around you. <laughs> like, like, you gotta, you gotta be, like, near some inner cities. Like, the, the only way you're buying a house to rent it is if you're buying the whole house and not living in that house and renting it to someone else, which a lot of people are also doing. Um, but you have to have so much extra capital to engage in that type of activity because you got to be able to have two houses. You got to have a house to live in and you got to have a house to rent to someone else so that they can live in it. But I guess that's how like the American dream is kind of fluctuating. You know what I mean? Like, and it makes me think about like, what is, what is the standard American dream today? Like, what are you seeing or hearing are the trends for today's American dream. Yeah, I think we'll talk about this more after the ad break, but I think that like very simple things are now becoming the American dream. Like I just want to be debt free. Like I want to pay off my student loans. I like want to live comfortably, like not have to think about it. I think it's like shifted yeah. for sure. And when we come back from the ad, we're going to hear some voices of people who are not us talking about what the American dream is for them. This is the Poetry Pod, where we break down lines one branch at a time. That's P-O-E-T-Tree. 
Y'all need to know that before y'all leave. I'm Stony Tony, a Yonkers artist who writes about his feelings, a pops of four kids, and a stubborn Nick fan. And I'm Hatchers like Mattress with an H, a poet, activist, and a fine bearded god. We, we are fathers, we are artists, we are poets. With new episodes released every Monday on all streaming platforms. Y'all know it's free to listen, right? The Poetry Podcast, where we discuss our poetic experiences and tackle topics like love, religion, social justice, parenthood. And we really brothers, so it's jokes all day. For all updates, you can go to thisis3sm.com and follow on Instagram at thisis3sm. This podcast is brought to you by Three Springs Media. So grab your friends and tell them to tune in. <laughs> Yo, you still rhyming? <laughs> That's a slant rhyme to be exact, bro. <laughs> That's a flex. That's a flex. <laughs> nah, but for real, make sure y'all tune in every Mondays. We're releasing on all streaming platforms. So we'll see y'all Monday. Peace. This is Lisa Fatima. Most of us, when we are asleep, we dream. And these are our personal dreams, using our personal voices, our authentic voices. Imagine awakening to a dream that has been mass-produced for you by prodigious accumulators of wealth, designed for you to become an under-accumulator of wealth as you seek dead presidents that separates you from your creative critically thinking mind and time as you go after things that sizzle but have no substance. This is the American dream designed to divide and deceive under the guise of being able to achieve. Hey, Colt America podcast. This is Dell, Bridgeport, Connecticut. I want to chime in on my thoughts about the American dream. You know? And this is complicated because when I was young, you know, you go to school, you don't truly have a grasp of the version of history you're being taught. So growing up, I believed wholeheartedly in the American dream. And a lot of that's because of my parents. My mother is immigrated from Costa Rica. She was in her teens. And where she grew up, it was maybe a stone's throw from the rainforest. The town was so small. They didn't have paved roads. You had to go to the local church to get your mail. My father is from Clarksdale, Mississippi. And both my parents are born right around the time of you know, some major civil rights landmarks. Mother became a school teacher, both successful in their fields. You know, outside looking in, they achieved the American dream. Now, mind you, even though my mother is born in Costa Rica, she, you would look at her and see, okay, you would think that's an African-American woman. So she dealt with being an Afro-Latina in the United States. My dad, a black man from the South, becomes a police officer in the North and attempt to get on the police force wasn't just this smooth thing. It was him and other African-American officers. Their test scores were illegally thrown out. The police department didn't want to hire. Eventually, there was a civil rights lawsuit brought. They were, the scores were readmitted and had a pretty successful police. But as I got older, again, my teenage years, they started talking to me differently about the country and education and history. Mind you, my mother is a history teacher. So in school, she had to teach what was, what was she taught in the test, textbooks. She'd add in some more things. And my father, who even though he's a police officer, he is a very pro-black, uh, militant-minded black man. And I see that, yes, they have by way of, uh, you know, if we're measuring success by money and wealth, yes, they've 
achieved the American dream. They have a very nice house uh, on a pretty, you know, upper middle class neighborhood. We go on vacations. We have the things we need. But there are still things they're wary about doing. You know, my dad would tell me, hey, you shouldn't drive in this neighborhood once it gets dark because I know how the police officers in this neighborhood would react to seeing you. My mother would warn me about certain teachers and say, hey, you can bust your butt in this class, but this teacher made, you know, just try to be a jerk to you. Well, we're taught the American dream is you come here, you work hard, you can be successful no matter what, no matter what obstacles are thrown in your face, you can make it, you just have to persevere. But then you think about what comes with that success. Can you freely be who you want to be, or do you have to stay within the guidelines that this country tells you who you have to be? You know, we see the attempts by certain people with certain political ideologies to undercut. So I would say to me, the American dream is, I don't know if it's, it's truly achievable. You know, if, if success is going to come with caveats and, you know, certain stipulations, well, that's not really success. It's doing things within the confines of what someone's given you that people can see that if tr everyone truly isn't able to achieve this dream, that it's, it's not really a dream. You know, we have some educations in some localities in this country that are just horrible. Can can a child truly achieve the American dream if the school system lacks basic necessities, you know, up-to-date textbooks, a hospital learning environment? You know, you have some schools in Baltimore that have no heat in the winter. Well, how can you focus on learning when you're freezing? The classroom is so chaotic. How can you learn if you want to learn? So don't think the American dream is attainable for everyone. Hi, my name is Crystal, and I currently live outside of Denver, Colorado, but I'm originally from North Texas. For me, growing up in a small town just south of the Oklahoma border, the American dream was to get married, own a home, and make the best dish at the church Sunday potluck, and raise your kids to love Jesus, hunting, and being a patriot. The idea of patriotism was very tied up in your identity as a Christian, and that identity was very white and very heteronormative. The idea was you could achieve all this um, no matter your background if you just worked hard enough. The people who didn't achieve that, well, they just needed to pull harder on their bootstraps. This picture of the American dream was, it came with a lot of shame for me. I saw myself as white trash. I did come from a very hardworking family, but we were very poor. There were times when the power wasn't always on or groceries were hard to buy and we had to rely on family or our church to make it by. Even whenever I stepped away from college to raise my son as a single parent and out of that create a very successful career for myself in the financial industry, I still didn't feel successful because I wasn't checking every box on that American dream list. It took me more than 30 years to reconcile who I was outside of that identity. At 36, I did come out to my family as queer, gender fluid, and an atheist. And even though my family was super supportive, I still struggled with that. And I still struggled with the idea that I was not fitting in with that idea of the American dream. I feel like the American dream can be detrimental, especially whenever you get into the small pockets of society where that's their only identity. They want to hold on to it and fight for it at all costs, and they feel threatened by anything that deviates from that ideal. I feel like it is the core of a lot of what is wrong with this hyper-patriotism, this hyper-American identity, that we have, and I just wanted to share my thoughts on it. My name is Chukwuemeka Chukura. I'm from Nigeria. I currently live in Brooklyn, New York. 
American dream has always been sold as something that's universal and achievable for all, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, or your um, socioeconomic upbringing. But as we all know, that is complete bullshit. And in terms of my experience from living in Texas and then living in New York City, the American dream seems to differ based off of the region you live in. At least from my experience in Texas, it seems that most people were just happy with the quote-unquote typical of what you consider the American dream. Get out of school, get a job, wife and kids, and settle down and make more miniature versions of yourself. As opposed to being in New York where everyone wants a voice and everyone wants a passion. Everyone is a creative podcaster, a, a photographer, a videographer. Here it seems the American dream is a lot more in having a voice and being part of the table. So I absolutely freaking love hearing these perspectives from around the country. So like we both identified that we had a very New York perspective on America. And so we kind of did a shout out to people that on Twitter and stuff to come back to us and tell us about their experiences. And yeah. Yeah, that, that's really fucking cool. This Northeastern corridor type of thought process is just like one corner of the country yeah you know so like i learned so much from hearing other people and what the american dream meant to them growing up especially when crystal was like yeah like and make the best make the best dish for the church <laughs> i was like i was like yeah we never had to make no dishes for no church up here like you know what i mean but it's so like it's just so cool to hear that. And if you're and if you're listening and you love what we're doing here, like definitely share your thoughts with us. Yeah. And and you know, your voice might end up in here too. Oh yeah, please. We would love to hear from you. Um at the end of our episode, we'll let you know kind of what's coming up that we need to have voices on. And if you want to send us a clip, we'll we'll include it all in the show notes. Like I really love the juxtaposition between urban and suburban. Yeah. Right. And it it also just like shines a light into like how large and different America is. I guess from your perspective, it'd be like the different sect sex of a cult, right? Like, so what does the American dream look like from an urban and suburban perspective today? I think it was a Mecca at the end there who was talking about the difference living in Texas and New York. And I actually really liked what he said about in New York, it's about having a voice and it's about like your side hustle. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to like what Krista was saying, which is like raising your kids to love Jesus and going on <laughs> like it's a very different. And so definitely the urban perspective is this kind of new American dream that we were talking about with shows like Sex in the City and Friends and all of this, which is kind of focused on a very specific time in people's lives. So I think uh, it was Martha Bales who said this new dream features on a fantasy of young, unattached men and women living in upscale urban setting with little or no contact with their families or communities and enjoying a degree of affluence and personal freedom, including sexual freedom, that is unheard of in most societies. Mm. Which if you're listening to like Crystal and Dell, like that's like very different from what they're experiencing. Yeah. And very different from what kind of the suburban dream seems to be. And what does like what does the suburban dream look like today? Well, I mean, I think the quote that I had here was from Bill Clinton, which is that we were all raised 
to believe that if you work hard and play by the rules, you should be given a chance to go as far as your God-given abilities will take you. <laughs> Which I, I do like the inclusion of God-given abilities because it's like giving you an out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what Krista was saying? She she has been successful. She has achieved the career, but like she's no longer in the church. She's yeah. a single mom. Like, But, you know, this is like a different a different thing. So even though they've worked hard, played by the rules, yeah. have an amazing career, probably a great mom, I imagine, like it still feels like they haven't achieved it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people feel like that. And mm-hmm. so we have some interesting kind of survey data on this. And so I'm going to ask you, by demographic, who do you think thinks that they have achieved the American dream the most? I would think that it's like, it's like older white folks. Interesting. You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. like they have like, you know, like your typical vice president, president of some company or whatever, who has the house and the cars and the kids that go to really fancy, fancy prep schools. Like they would believe I, I would, I would figure them. Well, that's the opposite of true. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) they are actually so uh, 50 to 65 year old white americans are the least likely to think that they have achieved the american dream yo what do y'all want (laughs) what do y'all want bro like y'all got everything (laughs) but immigrants and people of color they are more likely to think that they've achieved it and particularly like people like you like first generation who are more upwardly mobile I'm more likely to think they've achieved the American dream. Wow. Oh, wow. That's like, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm like, damn, like this, this America shit not working over here, (laughs) but it's, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think, I guess it makes sense. Cause like if, when I was growing up, my parents would just tell me like, like how hard it was for them in Haiti. And like my parents, like for their stations of life in Haiti, like they were, pretty well off the mere fact to have the opportunity to come to the United States from Haiti means that you came from some kind of means because you got to pay your way out. Mm. Right. Like, so, so them coming here and raising me, they would always like, I would complain about certain shit that I didn't have that I saw like my friends who were more well off had, you know, like I'd be like, yo, like they, they got like, you see, yo, yo, we don't even got the snacks they got. <laughs> like you ever seen any snacks? Like they got, they got branded snacks. Yeah. They got like the real frosted flakes with Tony the tiger on it. The, like my frosted flakes don't got no Tony. Like, <laughs> like what's up? And like my mom would be like, you know how hard it was <laughs> in Haiti, Carl. We didn't have cereal. Like she she would say some shit like that. So like when, when I think about it contextually, I'm like, oh wow. Like the life that I'm living as of this moment. Right. Like I'm like, oh shit. Like shit is lit. Like this is the American dream. Right. I mean, having like being able to go, I remember we were really restricted around food. Like you had to like ask for permission and like, you don't eat certain things at certain times. Like you had to finish your fucking meal too. Like, yeah. There was a lot of rules and like just going into a pantry and being able to eat like, like even now, like my parents have got more money. I can go there and I can literally eat like anything in the fridge or the pantry. And like, I still feel uncomfortable about yeah, it. Yeah. I'm like, but can I, am I going to yeah, get, yeah, am I going to get like 
my house I'm over be. here like, like, I'm like, it feels suspicious. Yeah, yeah. You're like, I don't know if it's okay. It's kind of like stealing from your parents. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, my, like, I didn't get a pantry until I was like a fucking grown man. Like, I was like 17 when they bought their, like, they bought their second house. And, like, my parents bought their first house in Brooklyn. Mm. But, like, we lived in an apartment and we rented the other apartment out to somebody else. And then we sold that house and then moved into a house where we just lived there by ourselves. And, like... Luxury. What I would say is luxury, right? Yeah. Um, and, like, I was, like, 17, 18 when that happened. So, like, that was the first time that I had a proper pantry. Yeah, I don't think we had one growing up. I say pantry, it's like, um, my parents have a pantry now. Yeah, yeah. So that's what, when I go in now, it's like you walk in, I'm like, whoa. Yeah, we yeah, had a same cupboard. thing, yeah. <laughs> we had a cupboard with the food in it. Right, right. You know, like, yeah, yeah, that's not a pantry. That's a cupboard. <laughs> like, like, and that's what I had. I had yeah. growing up, I had a cupboard with snacks. Yeah. And they were like snacks that were non-branded snacks. They were like regular store brand snacks. Of course. But then like, when we got this house and we lived in a bigger house, we had a pantry with branded snacks. And like my like little brother and sister are growing up with branded snacks. Oh my God. Don't even get me fucking started. My yeah. sisters, when I was a kid, we had to eat wheat bix every morning. So wheat bix for everybody who doesn't know what that is, which is like everybody outside of the UK and Australia. Basically like, uh, I don't know if you even have anything like that here. It's like, it's like shredded wheat, like blocks. Oh, you're talking about wheat thins. Is that, but it's like, they're kind of thick. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was it. Like for breakfast and like, maybe you could put some like honey on it. Yeah. But I had wheat bakes every morning and then I would go back to visit my parents after I grew up and my sisters are eating like whatever the fuck they want for breakfast. Yeah. Like toast. Like they've got like five different cereals. They have different things every day. Sometimes they have eggs and I'm just like, what the fuck is this shit? You got breakfast heaven. Yeah. Everything. They got they got several different types of bread. They got fruit bread. They got white bread. They got whole wheat. They got everything. It's it's yeah. it's luxury. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, I feel like parents are always like, uh, I don't know if you ever watch Monty Python, but they have this skit where they're all talking about when they were young, they had to do this, and it like descends into madness. I'm sure, yeah, because like my uncles used to say, I used to walk three miles <laughs> barefoot on rocks to go to school how dare you complain about the bus <laughs> like you know and i think that's what like contributes to the statistic that you told me where you know immigrants and first gen right like feel like the american dream has been achieved because just the places that some people are emigrating from are from an infrastructure perspective so different yeah and then at you know first generation kids, especially if you're growing up here, but your your parents are raising you, you're like taught to appreciate what you have so much. Then when you get a bit more, you're like, wow, like I achieved the American dream, right? But yeah. like comparatively, when you think about like motherfucking Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or some shit, like when you look at them, you're like, these motherfuckers is going to space and shit, like. Ain't that the American dream? <laughs> like, I mean, Elon Musk isn't even American, so right, and he's out he's here. He's already out there. He's right? out. Well, well, maybe he's one of the um folks, the immigrants that was in the statistics. <laughs> he's like, I got it, man. He's like, yo, yeah, yeah. This American dream shit is lit. I love it. <laughs> but I mean, the idea of the American dream is still alive and well. Like in a recent Pew survey. 
in 2017, 36% of people said they were already living the American dream and 46% said they were on their way, which is like pretty high numbers, really. Yeah, that's pretty high. That's, that's a lot of faith. That's what's yeah, up. it is. I mean, you guys are doing well with this cult shit. Like, you got people believing they're doing it. Like, you know. if you're looking at the statistics of what people are making, like, you know, it doesn't really match up. Yeah. But uh, here are the common characteristics of what people say they think is the American dream. Freedom of choice of how to live life, which I think is like what you were talking about at the top of the episode. You're like, I don't want to be a CEO necessarily. I want to yeah. like have my choices. Good family life, comfortable retirement, making valuable contributions to community, owning a home, having a successful career, and becoming wealthy. Wow. So they're like the main things. I wonder how this like structures out politically. Like I wonder if this is like an, an overall number, how does this skew when you think about it from like what sides of the aisle people are on. Yeah, I don't have numbers, but I could say, like, with a lot of certainty that the Republican Party has been using the idea of an American dream yeah. to kind of shame, like, coming back to the cult theme that we have, to shame people into voting for policies that are against their self-interest. Like, uh, oh, you want to vote for this policy now because you're going to achieve the American dream. And when you do that, you don't want to have high taxes. Yeah. So, like, you should vote against high taxes on the wealthy. Yeah. Or whatever. It's like the, a lot of what they're saying, it is trying to perpetuate this myth of the American dream to sort of like get people to vote for all of these things that are against their self-interest because they are a lot poorer than the people these laws are protecting. Right, 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 right. And yeah, and I mean, I think Trump, I think a lot of the housing boom right now, Trump really did use the idea, like he conflated the American dream with owning a successful business or an expensive home. And there has been some speculation that this has also contributed to this recent housing market trend. Like he really did bring that idea back of, yeah, you know, using it for his uh, uh, for his benefits. So on the right, that's that's sort of yeah how it looks for me. I think for the left, it's really around that like Martin Luther King, I have a dream, politics of recognition kind of idea of like we. The American dream is only a dream if everybody is equal opportunity to achieve it. Yeah. And and it is not fully defined. But the opportunity to achieve it is should be equal yes. to everyone. And so Charles Taylor and the politics of, rec of recognition, he speaks about the politics of difference. Mm -hmm. And so instead of saying we're a meritocracy, investing in programs like affirmative action to kind of help people to be able to achieve that whether or not they came from wealth or not but ultimately this still comes down to an idea of needing to like civilize based on western civilization and western ideas of success mm -hmm. so it's still flawed basically essentially charles taylor is like the american dream is equality of opportunity yeah but not necessarily equality of outcome yes which i think is i guess coming back to like everything that everybody said but i don't think it's the way that it's always experienced right because it is kind of shared as this monolithic idea even though it is about opportunity right but instead of it being kind of this optimistic message i think like on what chris was saying with their contribution is that instead of feeling hopeful about the american dream they felt a great deal of shame yeah and I think that a lot of people feel a lot of shame about not being able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, by not bootstraps. being able to achieve the American dream. So so they feel ashamed because they aren't able to participate in the narrative in which the narrative is described. Yeah. Which comes back to our cult behavior. Yeah. 
the leadership induces feelings of shame and guilt in order to influence and control its members. Right. And like America's done that really effectively with the American dream. I guess we should probably end there, but I kind of want to bring up just this one statement, which I just thought, I, I thought this sums things up very well, which is that Americanism isn't inherited. It is explicitly stated and acted out all the time in this kind of ideas like this, the American dream. And yeah, I think that it's an idea that people born here and from who move here all cling to that they kind of share as a shared experience in, the, in this community. So yeah, that's the American dream. That's the American dream. The American dream is really a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm surprised it took so long for that to come out. (laughs) Cult America is co-hosted and produced by us, Lisa Charlotte and Carl Joseph Black. Our production partner is Three Strings Media. Our research assistant is Thea Smith. Our artwork is by Stella Illustrated and our soundtrack is by King Virtue and Fosun. If you enjoyed the podcast, please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. A written review really helps. You can also access bonus episodes on Apple using the subscriber feature or on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cultusapod. We release bonus episodes there whenever we release episodes here and we cover American movies. And the first one's up and we covered Wolf of Wall Street and I freaking do not like that movie. And (laughs) Carl loves it. So it's a really good time. You can also contribute to our podcast, as you heard today. The next subject that I guess we're collecting soundtracks for is for our episode on the migrant experience. So if you have some thoughts about the migrant experience, if you are a migrant, if you aren't a migrant, if you know a migrant and you want to share your thoughts, particularly if you're outside of the main like big cities in America, we would love to hear from you. If you want to get in touch, please head over to cultusapod.com where you can leave comments on episodes or contact us through our contact form. You can also find us on Twitter at cultusapod. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. See you next time. I said my ancestors ain't fight for me to be taking shit from no crackers. I said, I said, I said my ancestors ain't fight for me to be taking shit from no crackers. Got that bishop up in they chest. That's what got my king and queen captured. Running through the shoots and climbing up ladders. Trying to duck the noose they used to free taggers. Traveling the routes to move to free status. Had to be the best at hide and seek. Shamalama. My ancestors ain't die for me to be answering to no masses.